So towards the end of my last episode, I hit you with a pretty loaded rundown of a man named Michael Aquino. So who is this man exactly? In all the research I've been doing, I found the most informative site I've come across as far as Michael Aquino is concerned is a website called Controversial.com, and the writer is a man named George Knowles. So that is the source that a majority of this biographical information comes from. Michael Aquino was born on October 16, 1946 in San Francisco. He graduated from the University of California in 1968 with a bachelor's degree in political science. That same year, he joined the army as an intelligence officer specializing in psychological warfare. Then, in 1969, he married his first wife, Janet, and he joined Anton LaVey's Church of Satan. Shortly after that, in 1970, he served a tour in Vietnam. When he returned in 1971, he rose to the rank of high priest in the Church of Satan. Over the next few years, he began to gain notable prominence, but at the same time, he was also becoming dissatisfied with Anton LaVey's leadership of the church. So in 1972, Aquino, along with some other members, broke away and they began to form their own group. In 1975, Aquino officially founded the Temple of Set in Santa Barbara. And to this day, the Temple of Set is considered the leading satanic church in the United States. Here's a clip of Aquino and his second wife, High Priestess Lilith Sinclair, on The Oprah Show in the 1980s. Talking to Dr. Aquino and his wife, um, you are a lieutenant colonel in the United States Army. Correct. Now, and how does the Army feel about you being head of the Temple of Set? The Army has known about my religion for um, uh, the entire span of my Army career, which mm -hmm. began in 1968. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, there was a reasonable amount of curiosity, as there has been all the way along, mm -hmm. with um, what exactly is this strange and unusual thing. And I've uh, talked about it in much the same way that I've talked here today on your show about it. Mm -hmm. And uh, other than that, the ar Army has paid uh, very little attention to it, the same as it would to anybody who is, say, a, a follower of Hinduism or of um, Buddhism or any other slightly unusual religion today. So you just go about your Army duties and it's fine and... and, mm -hmm. and I'm sharing that clip with you so that you know that Michael Aquino is a real person. He did create the Temple of Set in 1975. I have to be extra meticulous in vetting every source for this episode because when you start doing Google or YouTube searches for a name like Michael Aquino, I'd say for every one credible source, there's probably about 50 insane ones written by some lunatic. And quite frankly, my interest is not what any group's religious or non-religious practices are. My interest is that more than one source I have read claims that Michael Aquino, who had ultimately risen to the rank of lieutenant colonel in the army, is the person who purchased Johnny Gosh. Don't forget that moment from America's Most Wanted. Paul claims to have seen Johnny in 1986 on a trip to Colorado, where Johnny was being kept by a man called the colonel. So then, is the colonel who Johnny was sold to, in fact, the same lieutenant colonel Michael Aquino? Or is that just another theory that someone else created to fit their own narrative? Is the Colonel just a nickname given to some other pedophile who's never been identified? This is episode five of Faded Out. I'm Sarah Dimio. Before 
I officially get started, I want to bring you an update from last week's episode. I talked at length about the Franklin scandal and the man who was at the center of it all, Lawrence E. King. You remember I was talking about how difficult it was to find any kind of updates on King, but the day after I posted episode 4, a listener messaged me and hit me to a link that a Reddit user posted on the whereabouts of King recently. I will not give out this organization's name, as the original link that the Reddit user posted does not lead to this bio page, just the organization's homepage. However, this user did archive the link, which I can go to. To me, all of that implies that he's not with this place anymore. This organization is a children's opera and it is in the D.C. area. Larry King was a classically trained singer. In fact, he sang the national anthem at day two of the Republican National Convention on August 21st, 1984. Ladies and gentlemen, the chair now recognizes Lawrence King, Jr., a member of the Nebraska delegation, for the singing of the national anthem. <laughs> archived page that I'm looking at right now, I have no reason not to believe that this is the same person. I see a picture of an older looking Lawrence King, a large burly black man, very nice suit, glasses, mustache, and now with gray hair. His bio reads, Larry King moved to this area from the heartland of the nation. He is a semi-retired businessman, classical singer who is presently living in Reston, Virginia. His professional background has been to serve in the area of human and financial development for over 11 major church organizations. It goes on to say, quote, contributes time and support to events like the 2013 Vocal Art Competition for Emerging Artists. In his younger life, he did some guest opera appearances and also performed at the White House. Mr. King has a great concern that many of our young, trained opera singers have the opportunity to take the next step up in their career ladder." End quote. As recent as 2016, helping to train young people. And I don't know where this Reddit user found this link, and it doesn't surprise me that there's no sign of Lawrence King on the organization's website now, but I will say it is pretty disturbing that he got into such a position given his past. The laundry list of child sex abuse allegations, rape allegations, the documentaries, the books, and not to mention the embezzlement of $40 million, which he served time in prison for. Understand, though, that this is exactly why I give my contact info out at the end of every episode. I never would have found this on my own. So if you have any tips to add or something you think I left out, especially if it's regarding Johnny, email me. Message me. This is how these things get solved, by putting our thoughts together. So let's get back to the colonel. I have to amend what I said at the end of my last episode. I said the colonel is Lieutenant Colonel Michael Aquino, the founder of the Temple of Set. And while there are numerous sources that say Michael Aquino is the person who bought Johnny, there seems to be a confusion on who the moniker, the Colonel, actually belongs to in this situation. I've said this before, sometimes I get lost navigating this story. So, let's work our way through this, starting at the beginning of the timeline. On the morning of September 5th, 1982, Johnny Gosh is kidnapped off the street at 42nd and Marquardt Lane in West Des Moines, Iowa. 
The car that took him is a light blue Ford Fairmont, and the driver is a man named Emilio. Emilio liked to hurt people. In the minutes before Johnny was pulled into that car, a man walked out from between two houses and followed Johnny down the sidewalk. In the back seat of that car was a teenage Paul Benassi, whose job was to hold the chloroform over Johnny's face until he passed out. The car then blew through the stop sign and took off down the road on 42nd Street until it got to a waiting van, which Johnny was then transferred into. From there, Johnny was brought to a house in Sioux City, Iowa. Now, this is what multiple sites are telling me. Johnny was kept at that house in Sioux City for two weeks. On September 19, 1982, Michael Aquino purchased Johnny for $35,000. Aquino, allegedly, came to the house, took Johnny, and took off for Colorado. From there, they travel on to the ranch and arrive at the house that Paul Benassi would ultimately show to the producers of America's Most Wanted. The same house with the cavity dug underneath to hide the boys if the police showed up. Now, this is the part where I get really confused because according to this same source, Paul Benassi says that the Colonel is the man who runs the ranch in Colorado. But hold on, remember what the executive producer of America's Most Wanted, Paul Sparrow said. But every time we found a clue, we ran into a brick wall. The owner of the house, which had been abandoned, was a former prison guard who disappeared. So basically we've arrived at one of many forks in the road here. Who is this prison guard that went missing? Because you could take Michael Aquino out of this equation altogether and you could still have the same timeline. Johnny could have still been kept in Sioux City for two weeks, still brought to the ranch in Colorado for the purpose of being sold for sex and pornography, and still have been sold to the highest bidder without Aquino being at all involved in the situation. The Colonel could understandably be a nickname that this former prison guard went by. But by that same reasoning, you could also take the missing prison guard out of the equation. Maybe there was no prison guard. Maybe it was Michael Aquino who ran that ranch. But who would effectively have time to own a ranch in Colorado that was hiding and trafficking young boys all while staying under the radar while simultaneously a lieutenant colonel in the army and the high priest of the Temple of Set out in California? Maybe they are two different people who were both involved. And the only confusion is who the moniker belongs to. I want to read you a paragraph from Nick Bryant's book, The Franklin Scandal. Speaking about the abuse that Paul Benassi endured from Lawrence King, Bryant writes, quote, Benassi told me about a high-ranking military official who was in cahoots with King's pedophilic blackmail enterprise. He said that the military officer in question was a Satanist and a pedophile. The military officer Benassi alluded to is an admitted Satanist and he was implicated in the molestation of several children. I have the search warrant that police executed on his home during a molestation investigation. A child who was purportedly molested gave an apt description of the officer's house, which was detailed in the search warrant. After local police executed the search warrant, they found corroboration of the child's account, but the feds usurped the case and dropped the charges against the officer. A familiar theme." End quote. Brian's book does not name who this alleged military officer and admitted Satanist is, but I think we can at least agree that there's probably not a long selection of people on that list. So he's alluding to Michael Aquino, but let's stay on track here. Does that specifically link him to Johnny? Well, Michael Aquino's name does come up again in Johnny's timeline of events, but before I can talk about that, I have to tell you about some other events that happened prior to that. So. In my next segment, I'm going to play you some clips from a different documentary called America's MIA Children. And we're going to talk about an article that came out in the Washington Times in the late 80s that gives some credibility to the allegations in Conspiracy of Silence. That's up next.
before I get started, I want to remind you the content in this segment is graphic. It contains descriptions of sexual assault on children and of murder. Please listen at your own discretion. America's MIA Children is an hour-long film made by American Free Press and a little-known company out of Iowa City called Victory Video. It was made in 1992, and it's not even really a film because it's very rough and it's clear that this is not something that was made by professional filmmakers. It's more like an educational video, and I'm quite certain that America's MIA Children is Victory Video's only project and that they existed only for the purpose of making this project. A large portion of it is spent talking with John and Noreen Gosh. If you wanted to find something that links every piece of information that we've talked about on this podcast so far, this hour of roughly put together footage does exactly that. It's researched and reported by a journalist named John Zielinski. Right as it opens, it's extremely difficult to watch. And that's because of the images on the screen during the opening credits. The first image is a young dark-skinned boy, clearly dead, his eyes partially open, with a gunshot wound through his chest. There are two different hands in the frame, pointing squarely at the gunshot wound. A few frames later, it's a small white boy face down in a pool of blood. Also clearly dead, his hair, every inch of his body is covered in blood, and his shirt is torn. The next image after that is an adolescent girl, laying on her back, clearly dead, her breasts exposed, in a pool of blood, blood smeared all over her body. Two sets of hands wearing latex gloves, taking some kind of a blade to her skull. It becomes clear within the first few seconds of watching these credits, these are all still images from snuff films. There's no question about it, and it is the real deal. I'm going to play for you the first scene from America's MIA Children. You're going to hear John Zielinski talking in front of a congregation in Wayland, Iowa, about the Franklin Credit Union, as well as an article that appeared on the front page of the Washington Times. The climate of fear pervades everything. Nebraska is a state of fear. I got this out in Nebraska, and it says, if you can't read it, homosexual prostitution probe ensnares officials of Bush Reagan White House, call boys given midnight tour of the White House. On the backside, it talks about children being taken off the streets of America. Uh, in addition to credit card fraud, the investigation is said to be focused on the illegal interstate prostitution, abduction, and use of minors for sexual perversion, extortions, larceny, and related illicit drug trafficking. Now, when I got this, there's no way I can tell it's the truth, okay? It could be a Xerox thing made up of different headlines, and they could have filled this whole thing in. But I called Paul Rodriguez in the Washington Times. This was run in 1989. And I said, was this the only story? And was this run on the front page the way it indicated? He says it was, and I wrote 60 stories all together about this. And I'm asking you, if a major paper in Washington, D.C. is running headlines about children who are kidnapped off the streets of America being prostituted even into the White House, don't you think that if the news media were disseminating information as they normally would, it would be picked up and run across the country. What would have happened with Richard Nixon if the Washington Post had run the Watergate stuff and no other paper had picked up on it at all? And no Associated Press and no one had picked up on what was going on. That is literally what's happening today. The headline reads, Homosexual Prostitution Inquiry Ensnares VIPs with Reagan Bush. Underneath it, it says, Call Boys Took Midnight Tour of White House. It is a real headline and a real article that ran in the Washington Times. 
You can Google it. This does corroborate Paul Benassi's claims at the end of Conspiracy of Silence. However, I find this headline is a little misleading. The article alludes to these callboys, so to speak, being brought to the White House for the purpose of sex. But let's listen to that part of the conversation between Paul Benassi and his lawyer, John DeCamp, again. King's partner in sex crime was powerful Washington lobbyist Craig Spence. He took youngsters like Benassi on midnight tours of the White House. So you were in the White House then? Yes. And how, how did you gain access? Well, I came down with uh, Larry King, but Craig Spence was the one that arranged the trip for us. And it was kind of a, a gift for our services that we were doing. How many times were you on this kind of a trip? I came to it on two times. Two times? And were you used for sex on those occasions? Not until after we left. After you left the White House? Yes. What it's, time of night? It was usually around uh, midnight. Benassi is saying that the midnight tours of the White House was sort of a reward for all the sex that went on at Larry King's lavish parties. But let's look at the bigger picture here. Yet again, Paul Benassi appears to be telling the truth. Zelinsky mentioned that one of the reporters on the article said he wrote 60 stories on this subject. But this one from 1989 is the only one that ran, and no other papers would pick it up. He also gives that example of the Washington Post, had it been the only paper to report on Watergate. If no one else had picked up on it, what would have happened with Richard Nixon? He makes a very good point there. But I want to point out a slight disparity there. What did all the journalists who reported on Watergate at the Washington Post and beyond have that the reporters at the Washington Times did not have regarding this story? Sources, information, facts. Those are the things that would have made other news media outlets want to pick up on the story. Remember, with Paul Benassi having been in prison and having multiple personality disorder, authorities never wanted to bother questioning him about Johnny Gosh. They wrote him off as a pathological liar. So where does that leave the other papers? What sources did they have to go to where they would be able to fact check any of their information? So it stands to reason that no other paper would want to touch this story. And really, it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. Because if they had done a story on it, they risk their credibility because they'd be going off of very limited information from only a few sources willing to talk about it. If they don't, well, they're accused of not doing enough or of being part of the cover-up. Here is a piece of information that came to me in the mail. It came from the investigation by the Franklin Committee of the Nebraska Legislature. It was verified in its authenticity by Republican Senator Lauren Schmidt of the unicameral of the Nebraska legislature who verified the truth and authenticity of it. I want to give you a picture of true horror. But children were not merely abused. One victim described an incident at a farm near Elkhorn, Nebraska in 1981 or 82, where a 10-year-old boy was repeatedly sodomized and beaten by older men. He finally lay crying with blood streaming from his rectum. One of the men took up a pitchfork, playfully playing with him at first, but finally sticking one tine into him. While the boy screamed and the other men stood around and laughed, finally the whole pitchfork was stuck through him, killing him. Snuff films were involved as well. Another young boy was taken by someone in the King Circle from Nebraska 
to another city and forced to perform oral sex on a man. As the abuser reached orgasm, he shot the boy in the head with a pistol, all of which was filmed. Right after that clip, the video goes to an interview with John and Noreen Gosh at their house. It was sometime in August of the year that Johnny was kidnapped uh, when uh, a neighbor lady saw this car sitting there with California plates on it, taking pictures of many different things, but uh, Johnny was on his paper out at the same time. and uh, Apparently she was shooting pictures or, you know, she was pointing the, the camera at him, whether she took the picture or not, we pre presume she was. And the lady called the police department about it. They never, ever checked it out. Then they lost the license plate number. The lady had wrote it down. After this ordeal, uh, she didn't have the license plate number anymore either. And uh, then roughly a month later, on September 5th, 1982, that's when Johnny uh, was kidnapped on his paper route. And uh, the people that were there that morning at the corner said that the only thing they saw in this guy's car was a brown Manila envelope laying on the front seat. Whether it was a picture, whether it was a work order to kidnap him or whatever it was, um, we presume it was probably both. And at the time of the abduction, um, Johnny left the house at about 5.55 in the morning and headed towards the paper drop area. And when he got partway there, a man in a car had pulled over and asked him for directions. And then Johnny continued on the sidewalk up to the corner where the other boys were waiting to pick up their papers. The man then took off in his car and evidently circled way around our housing block and another one to come back to the same area and pull in up on 42nd Street where Johnny and another boy and a 44-year-old attorney was standing. He was picking up his son's papers. The man pulled over to the curb, opened up the door, shut off the engine, and put his feet out on the ground and began to engage all of them in conversation. Mostly it was about asking for directions. And the two witnesses had a very, very good look at the man because it was under a street light. And that became very valuable later because they did work with a composite artist that we hired to construct the composite drawing which the authorities now use. Um, they don't use the one that they did. And um, the man was Mediterranean or Spanish, probably in his 40s, just impeccably dressed, very neat. The car was very neat. The witnesses had an exact description of the car. Um, the man spoke with a very slurred speech pattern. At that point, the lawyer left the area, taking the papers with him for his sons, and our son made the statement to the other boy, you know, this guy's weird. There's something wrong here. I'm going home. He was scared. So Johnny took off down the street to head for home, which at that point he was headed north, and he had to go one block north and then turn and go another block west to get back up to our block. He got halfway down the street, and the boy that was sitting at the corner, who was 16, heard our dog begin to growl who was walking along with Johnny. And at that point, he looked up, and he saw a very, very tall, thin man. He estimated him to be probably about 8 or 10 inches taller than Johnny. Came out from between two houses and fell in behind Johnny and followed him down the street and around the corner out of sight. Then just seconds later, two other boys approached from a different area to get their papers. 
and they witnessed Johnny sitting on his wagon slumped over like he was sick. They didn't waved at him and continued on. Nobody suspected impending danger. They got to the corner, and at that moment, they all heard the slamming of a car door and the screech of tires. And that same blue car came right through the stop sign, turned left, which was north, and headed out of town. The noise awakened a boy who was living at the corner in a house in the upstairs, and his bedroom window faced that street. And when he looked out, all he saw was Johnny's wagon and the car taking off. They had already thrown him in the car. And with all of that evidence, we still did have difficulty getting an initial fast reaction and investigation started with the police. Um, they, they, they wanted to tend to believe that any kid that age would run away in the face, you know, in the face of five witnesses that each saw a part of this whole kidnapping take place. Imagine being Noreen Gosh and having to tell that exact same story for 35, almost 36 years now. You heard John Gosh mention a woman who was seen a few weeks before the abduction, taking pictures of Johnny. And then he mentions a brown manila envelope sitting in the front seat of the car that took Johnny. That also matches up with something that Paul Benassi said. Remember in my third episode, I played you a clip of Paul Benassi saying that on the morning of the kidnapping, there was already a buyer for Johnny. So now we have John Zielinski asking the Goshes, how much do these children typically sell for? Did anybody give any indication of how much it cost to buy one? Because what I'm saying is that this is not going to be done cheaply and it's not going to be done no, over. We've heard estimates of about fifty to $75,000 per child, depending on the features and the looks of that child, the innocence, prepubescent children. Um, there are also, and this has been documented by a number of private investigators who researched it, that periodically auctions take place in the United States. Different places they move around, they don't just set up shop in one spot and publish a notice that there's going to be an auction. It's done very secretively and they might run 10 to 20 kids at a time through an auction block and the buyers can be from foreign countries or whatever and then the child would never have a hope of ever getting back to his own country. I want to play you a piece of my conversation with Della Williams and Tracy Pampina from the Missing Persons Support Center, who I introduced you to in my first episode. Tracy had told me a story and the circumstances match up perfectly with the kind of auctions that you just heard Noreen talking about. You know, child sex trafficking, that's a not that's not a million dollar industry, that's a billion dollar industry. Absolutely. Yeah. Tracy, tell her your story about the, the kids from Wisconsin. Oh, um, I went to um, I went to this conference la last year, and I went. There was a speaker there. He he founded a sex trafficking organization, so he he like educates people. He was an excellent speaker, but he went to Thailand, and it was on business. And he was walking back to his hotel, and there was a young man there trying to pick him up. And he he said to him, oh, well, he was speaking English to him. And the man was like, well, you know, he goes, wow. He's like, you speak English. Are you from the U.S.? He said, I'm from Wisconsin. <laughs> and he said, really, how do I know you're from Wisconsin? And he said, tell me something about Wisconsin. 
they started explaining some type of park or or something. It, it, it's like a almost like a, a an amusement park type place. Mm-hmm. And he he was right. I, like after I, I guess after his conversation, he went and looked it up, and 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 it was true. There was this amusement park there. Well, he had asked him like this. He was trying to pick him up for sex, and he's like, "Well, you know, how did you end up here in Thailand?" And basically, he just kept getting sold down the line, cheaper yeah. and cheaper and cheaper, all over the U.S. They just kept shipping him from state to state to you know different countries, and he ended up in Thailand. Children being sold and sold, both within the country and outside of it, until they can't satisfy the pedophile's desires anymore. I'm going to leave you on that note today, so as not to bombard you with too much of this at once. We'll pick it up again next week. I'll have a few more clips for you from America's MIA children. We'll talk more about Paul Benassi, and you'll find out how it was Benassi's lawsuit against Lawrence King for his years of abuse that would have a direct impact on Noreen Gosh, and it would take Johnny's story in a whole new direction. For now, as I said earlier, please feel free to contact me with any remarks you have, any information, any that you think I should include in a later episode. Please share this podcast as well. The more people we get listening, the more hope we have of solving Johnny's case. You can tweet me. My Twitter handle is Sarah E. Dimeo. That's S-A-R-A-H-E-D-I-M-E-O. You can also email me at fadedoutpodcast at gmail.com. Faded Out also has a Facebook page. The URL for that is facebook.com slash fadedoutpodcast. As always, this podcast is recorded at the Connecticut School of Broadcasting in Farmington, Connecticut. This has been episode five of Faded Out. See you next time.